Well, I was reading uh, this week uh, about a book written by uh, a professor, a professor of computer science uh, in the US called Randy Pausch. Uh, and the book is called The Last Lecture. And apparently uh, it's quite a tradition in academic circles in the US to, uh, to be asked to deliver a last lecture. Uh, it's, it's quite a good idea, actually. The idea behind it is that the person invited to give the lecture has to imagine that this is the last opportunity they will ever get to deliver a lecture. And so they, they have to think deeply about what wisdom they would want to pass on to their listeners if they knew this was their very last chance. Um, and Randy Pausch, being uh, a lecturer in computer science, he was invited to, to deliver one of these last lectures. He had, was asked to imagine that this was his very last opportunity to pass on his wisdom to his listeners. But for Randy Pausch, actually, this wasn't an imaginary situation because just a short time before he received the invitation to deliver this lecture, he'd been told that he had terminal cancer and had only months to live. This very likely would be his last lecture. Uh, he eventually accepted the invitation and did give his last lecture. It's on YouTube, you can watch it. Uh, but Pausch was not only concerned to deliver his last words to, uh, to his colleagues and to his peers. You see, Randy Pausch, he, he had three children. The, the oldest was five years old, a girl. He had two sons. Uh, one was two years old, the other was just one year old. He, re he realized that the, the eldest, the daughter, would probably remember a little bit about him, but in, in all likelihood, the two boys would not remember him at all, nor remember what he was about and what he stood for. And so he fleshed out his last lecture into a book, which is what you can see behind you, The Last Lecture, Lessons in Living. And in it, he captured the most important things that he wanted his kids to know about life, about how to live it, so that they would be able to live safe and fulfilled lives once he was gone. Now that's very much what we have here in this letter of 2 Peter that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. You see, the, the author of this letter the Apostle Peter knows that his time on earth is very short. Just scan past the, the passage that Mark read and, and onto verse 13 of, of chapter 1. I think that it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. You see, the Lord Jesus has revealed to Peter that his time in this body is short. And, and so Peter's priority, the thing that he's now putting all his efforts into, is to remind the believers of those things that are most important for them to know. The things that will keep them safe, keep them fruitful, on their walk with Christ. 
What we have here is Peter's last message to the church that he loves. What we have here is what Peter would want you to know. Vital things for your walk with Christ. And if you carry on and read through the rest of 2 Peter, which incidentally I highly recommend that you do, it will literally take you 10 or 15 minutes. If you, if you read through, you'll find that the concern that's uppermost in Peter's mind is false teaching. That old classic from the New Testament epistles. You see, there were bogus teachers who were coming into the church and who were denying the return of Christ to judge the earth and to remake the whole universe. And of course, what you believe about the return of Christ inevitably affects how you live here and now. And so these false teachers were putting all their efforts into indulging themselves in this world. And Peter's response to this danger is twofold. Firstly, he tells his readers to hold fast to the gospel, hold fast to the the prophetic words of the Old Testament, and to hold fast to the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. And secondly, as no doubt you'll have noticed when Mark read through this passage that we're looking at today. He calls them to godly living. Make every effort to add to your faith, goodness, and so on. In fact, it's where he finishes the entire letter. This is what he says in the last verse of 2 Peter. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's this call to godly living that we're going to be looking at tonight. We're going to look, first of all, at the grounds for godly living. Uh, Then we're going to look at the good news of godly living. And finally, we're going to to consider the call to strenuous godly living. So first of all, the grounds for godly living. And I don't know if if it struck you when Mark read that passage, but there's, there's an astonishing revelation that jumps out Uh, from the first verse of this passage. Do you see how Peter addresses the people that he's writing to? To those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours, or more literally, a faith equal to ours, or a faith of equal standing with ours. Now think about that. Peter, Peter is an apostle. These apostles, these, they were Jesus' inner circle. Most of them had lived alongside Jesus. They were, they were his personal friends. They were eyewitnesses of his glory. They were the ones chosen by God and sent to bear witness to Christ. They wrote the New Testament. They had positions of great authority in the church. They were important men. And yet Peter writes to his first readers, as he writes to you, if you're a Christian here tonight, that your faith is of equal standing as that of the apostles. I mean, think about that. You, here tonight having a faith of equal standing to to Peter, the the rock on which Jesus was going to build his church. You, 
having a faith of equal standing to, to the Apostle Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles. You having a faith of equal standing to, to John, the beloved disciple. How is that possible? Well, it's possible because all believers, whether you're an apostle or not, receive that faith as a gift, not as a result of our, our goodness or our worthiness, but through the righteousness of Jesus. See, that's the only starting point for godly living, having faith in Christ that comes through his righteousness. And not only is, is Jesus the source of our faith and our standing before God, he's also the source of everything that we need to live a godly life. Did you see that in verse 3? His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. See, God didn't just send Jesus to deal with the guilt of our sin and then say to us, now it's up to you. Now you've got to dig deep and search for the hero inside yourself. No, no, no. It's, it's in knowing Jesus. It's in our relationship with him that we have everything that we need to live a holy and godly life. It's, there's no special transcendent truths that we need to access in order to unlock godly living. There's no special methods or techniques that are the key to unlocking godly living. There's no conference we need to go to. There's no diet that we need to be on. Everything, everything is ours through knowing him. And at the root of all of this is Christ's glory and goodness. It's there in verse 3. It's because Jesus is glorious and good that he called us into relationship with himself. And in verse 4, it's because Jesus is glorious and good that he gave us very great and precious promises, the promises of the gospel. And by believing them, we have escaped the corruption that is in this world because of evil desires, and by which, astonishingly, we can participate in the divine nature. More on that later. But you see, when we, when we hear this call to strenuous, godly living, it's vital that we get the grounds of that call very clear in our minds, because not to do so is deadly. You see, the grounds is Jesus. That, that through faith in him, we are put into good standing with God. That by his righteousness, we're saved. That in him, God has granted to us everything we need in order to live a godly life. See, if, if you're not starting with Christ as your source of righteousness and your strength for godly living, all your attempts to do good will, in the end, turn into a, an attempt to secure a good standing with God by your own merits. And that's deadly. That's not Christianity. Uh, some of you may have had experience of that, of being part of churches where godly living has, has become divorced from the grace of God in Christ. And the result is, is a dead, 
guilt-driven legalism. But no, the grounds for godly living is the grace of God to us in Christ. That's the first thing. And secondly, the good news of godly living. Uh, let me ask you this. When you, when you hear words like holiness and godliness, godly living, what's your immediate reaction? Is it great, good news, fantastic? Well, if you're like me, probably not. Um, I guess for, for many Christians, holiness is, is a bit like flossing your teeth or, or eating bran. It's, it's something you know you should probably do, but it doesn't fill you with a sense of joy. It, it's more of a, a sense of onerous obligation. Uh, but when the Bible, But the Bible tells us that actually this call to godly living is in fact good news. In fact, it's part of the good news. It's part of the gospel. If you jump back to verse 4 again, do you see, we, we mentioned it before, the astonishing truth that Peter writes there. He talks about how through gospel promises we have escaped the corruption that is in this world because of sin and we may participate in the divine nature participate in the divine nature that sounds astonishing doesn't it and it is see when we turn to Christ we receive his spirit living in us God himself the Holy Spirit dwelling in us and through the spirit's work in us we can grow however imperfectly in this life more and more to reflect his nature and his beauty and his character. And we can more and more grow to escape the, the rust and the corruption of sin and grow to be more like Christ. And that's good news. I wonder, do you have too small a view of the good news of the gospel? See, we can think that the gospel is only about being freed from the guilt of sin and the punishment that our sin deserves. And of course, it's not less than that. Praise God, it's not less than that. But it's more. See, the good news of gospel is that we're saved not only from the penalty of sin, but also from its power. Through his spirit in us, we're, we're brought, brought to participate in the divine nature to more and more escape that corruption of sin and to reflect his character. That will always be partial. It will always be imperfect in this life. But one day, as we'll see in verse 11, when we receive a rich welcome into Christ's eternal kingdom, we'll perfectly reflect him. And that... This growth in godliness here and now in this world is like a down payment of that perfect Christ-likeness which will be ours then. One of my favorite passages in the New Testament is in Ephesians 2. It's a wonderful passage in which Paul starts with us dead in transgression and sin and goes through to tell the gospel of grace. And this is how he finishes it. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. 
And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We're his workmanship, created for good works. We are saved by grace for good works. That is the gospel. That is the good news. And it's not only that godly living, uh, not only is godly living part and parcel of the gospel, it's also good news because it leads to a fruitful life and safety on the path to that eternal kingdom to come. Look at verse 8. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we all want, isn't it? We want our lives to be effective and productive. And look at the second half of verse 10. If you do these things, you will never stumble. Uh, The stumbling that that he's talking about here, I think, is apostasy. It's falling away from Christ entirely. And godly living is good news. Because if, if we strive to live holy and godly lives in Christ, we will never stumble. We'll never be sucked in by false teaching. We'll never abandon the faith. In fact, quite the opposite. Look at verse 11. You will never stumble and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, Christ-empowered godly living is the route by which God brings his people safely into the eternal kingdom of Christ that is going to be fully revealed when he returns. It's the route by which we receive a rich, a lavish welcome into that kingdom. So secondly, godly living is good news. So in light of all of that, in light of what we've just been discussing, Peter calls us to holy living. Look at verse 5. For this very reason... Make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. Uh, Peter gives a list of what this godly living looks like in contrast to the behavior of the false teachers. Faith is the starting point. That faith in Christ that we saw in verse 1 is is a gift of his righteousness. To that is added goodness, moral excellence in every area of life. Then knowledge, knowing God, knowing his will, knowing what pleases him. After that, self-control, mastering our, our desires and passions rather than being mastered by them. Then perseverance, remaining faithful to Christ despite opposition and hardship, patiently bearing difficulty whilst looking to the Lord. And godliness, reverence for God, 
consciously acknowledging him in everything we do and seeking to reflect his character in every circumstance. Then there's mutual affection. The actual Greek phrase is is brotherly affection. It's talking about uh, affection shown to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And finally, love, which crowns all the other qualities and, and which incorporates all the others. Now, though there's a, there's a kind of sense to, to the order in that list that he gives. You know, it starts with faith and it finishes with that, that greatest virtue of love. I don't think what Peter means for us to read into this is that it's, there's a sort of strict mechanical sequence to how you work this out. It's, he's not saying that you start with goodness and then concentrate on that and only then, only when you've cracked goodness, then you move on to the next step of knowledge and, and so on in this kind of stepwise upward motion. I don't think he's saying that. He's using a, a literary device of the time. But what he's saying is that we should be seeking to grow in, in all of these qualities. But I think the thing that we, we can't escape the thing that really stands out from this passage is the strength of that call. I mean, look at, look at that language in verse 5. Make every effort. Make every effort. What he's talking about here is intense, focused, planned, intentional activity. It's not going with the flow and it, it'll probably all just happen naturally. It's not, well, if you've got some time left over after, you know, after the, the really important stuff, then you might like to have a think about this. No, no, it's make every effort. I mean, even the word that's, that's translated add in verse 5 has particularly strong connotations. It, it means to, to lavishly supply something at great expense to yourself. So Peter's saying, to your faith, lavishly supply at great cost to yourself, goodness. To goodness, lavishly supply at your own expense, knowledge, and so on. This is not doing the minimum to get by, the minimum you can get away with. This is being lavish in the time and effort that you put into growing in these qualities. And notice this, is, this isn't like a, a one-off thing. It's not a, a box you tick and, and then move on. You never in this world reach a point where you say, yeah, I'm, I'm happy where I've got to. I think I'll uh, call it a day there, put my feet up and, and have a rest. No, look at, look at verse 8. If you possess these qualities in increasing measure... So the the godly living that the Bible envisages is one in which we are always growing in these Christ-like characteristics. I think when when we start to talk about strenuous effort in holy living, we can start to feel feel a bit uncomfortable, can't we? It's like our evangelical alarm bells start going off. It can feel like this, this is contradicting salvation by grace alone through faith alone like we're falling into some kind of works-based legalism. And of course, if, if we're talking about how we're made right with God, then that's absolutely something we should be worried about. 
We've seen from earlier verses that our standing is entirely a free gift of Christ's righteousness. But when it comes to our growth in the Christian life, the Bible doesn't separate God's gracious work in us and our own intense effort. In fact, it holds those two things together. Um, As we've seen, the the grounds and the roots of our efforts in godliness is God's grace to us in Christ, and and the source of strength for that growth in godliness is knowing Christ. Any growth that we have in these Christ-like qualities is, is ultimately down to God. But the Lord has chosen that the way he grows those qualities in us is is through our cooperation with his spirit. And that cooperation looks like hard work. It's dedicated, directed effort. Perhaps as well, one of the reasons that talk about strenuous effort in godly living makes us feel a bit nervous is that we can have a little bit of an unbalanced view of of what the Christian life looks like. What I mean is this. We, we can think that the Christian walk is, is all about the, that freedom and, and the emotion and the, the spontaneity and the love of, of that relationship that we have with Jesus. And things like effort and, and planning and discipline just seem to be complete opposites of that. Surely they, they spoil that. Maybe it ties in a little bit with the reason that fewer people get married these days. Well, we're in love. Why do we need this marriage covenant? Surely that would ruin the whole love relationship. But again, the Bible doesn't keep those things separate. See, the Bible doesn't separate freedom from discipline. In fact, in the New Testament, it tells us that being a slave of Christ is to be the most free that you could possibly be. And it doesn't separate heartfelt emotion from hard work. In fact, they belong together just as they do in a healthy marriage. So the obvious question from this passage is this, are you making strenuous effort in godly living? Am I making strenuous effort in godly living? Are you making strenuous effort in growing in these qualities that Peter lists here? Are are you planning and striving towards growth in holiness? I've no doubt that many of us are making strenuous efforts We put planning and we put time and effort into those things that in reality are most important to us. Uh, But if you're like me, then godliness is not one of those things. I remember a couple of years ago when we bought our first property, I I planned for that. I, I worked hard for that to ensure that everything worked out well. And in my secular job, I planned carefully and worked to ensure that goals are met. But in godliness, in that thing that I have been graciously saved for by the shedding of Christ's precious blood, with that I'm a lot less careful. 
with that, I'm happy to assume that growth will just happen even if I don't specifically plan for it. But as we know with prayer, it never just happens if we don't plan for it and make time for it and put the effort into it. But the problem is that if we're not seeking to grow in godliness, however faltering, falteringly and flawed those efforts might be, we are in effect denying our profession of faith in Christ. Look with me at, at verse 9. But whoever does not have them, these qualities, is short-sighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Now, in the Bible, forgetting is, is not used in the same sense that we use it. It's never about a failure of memory, of something just slipping your mind. Like, oh yeah, of course, I completely forgot. No, no, in the Bible, forgetting is always an act of the will. To forget in the Bible is to live today as though something in the past never really happened. And what Peter is saying here is that not growing in these qualities is actually a choice on your part to deny your turning to Christ for forgiveness in the first place and and that cleansing of sin that that was symbolized in your baptism. It's a closing of your eyes to that commitment that you made in the past. And ultimately, if we persist in that, it is in fact the proof that that conversion was never genuine in the first place. And that's why Peter says in verse 10 and 11, therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You see, this growth in godliness is something that confirms the the genuineness of our faith. It confirms that you're called by God and chosen by him. Again, don't, don't misunderstand this verse. It's not saying that God's calling and electing people to be saved is conditional on whether those people respond with good works. It's not saying that to be saved, God does his bit and then we do our bit and it's the the combination of the two that saves us. No, he's saying that growth in godliness is the evidence that we are truly called and elected by God. It's the inevitable fruit of true conversion. So he says, be all the more diligent to grow in godliness because that confirms our calling and election. It's why, incidentally, if, if you're struggling with assurance about your salvation, one of the important things to do is, is to stop spending time introspecting, to stand on uh, the promises of the gospel and, and to get on with putting every effort into growing in godliness. please don't think that this is an optional part of the faith, you know, for the keen ones, the the ones who go off to Bible college and people like that. Now, if you are a Christian, you are called to this blessing of strenuous holy living. 
it's an essential, non-negotiable part of your faith. And that's the consistent and repeated teaching of the New Testament. We could be here all night if we were to look at all the verses talking about this in the New Testament. But here's just one from Hebrews, from Hebrews chapter 12. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See, through Christ, you have received a faith of equal standing with the apostles. In knowing Christ, you have everything you need for godly living. The good news of the gospel is that you have been saved for good works, to participate in the divine nature, to be more and more reflecting the Savior who you will perfectly reflect when he returns. So make every effort to grow in godliness. Make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Let's pray together.